0: will be in Amos chapter two, starting in verse four. When a child falls down and grazes their knee or elbow, a natural response is that they would run, run uh, to mom or dad for attention. And there's the, that comfort of a cuddle, the reassuring words, uh, a band-aid. That's all that's needed to send that kid back to play happy. It's funny, like as you wonder how much it actually hurts them to have that injury, but just to know that they're hurting and to have those words spoken, to have that just a band-aid is enough to make them feel great, like nothing's wrong. And uh, we all experience hurt in life. There are things that hurt us, that wound us, and it's good for us to go to the Lord and to show him the spot where it hurts. Because how many times has a crying child come up to you and you're like, what's wrong? And you do a quick once over and you don't see anything. You're like, you need to tell me what's wrong or else I can't help you. And sometimes we can be like a child who instead of going to his father to show the place, we can be sullen and isolate ourselves like it's God's fault that we're suffering. When he's the only one that can heal us. He's the only one who can help us. And he is compassionate, he is patient, he pursues us. He won't force us to bring our pains to him. But he he asks us, show me where it hurts. Are you willing to talk about it? Now a graze is pretty easy to diagnose. A parent's like, okay, stitches are not required here. You don't need to go to the emergency room. We're all fine. Like, I can handle this. But sometimes the expertise of a doctor is needed, specialized instruments. And that's why they recommend that uh, aging people have regular checkups so that they can catch a disease, something serious, in the early stages before it's even known by the patient. They don't realize they're a patient. They don't realize that they're sick or that they have a condition. So before the symptoms can even be known by that person, the doctor's like, hey, you have this, and with quick, if the treatment's gonna be most effective at the beginning, so let's tackle that. And you're like, then you you have your choice, right, if you're gonna do what they say or not. Um, And the prophet Amos, he's speaking at a time in Israel and Judah when they were like partying in their prime, like young people who felt invincible, and they received this unsolicited letter from the God that was saying, you guys are in trouble and judgment is coming. They weren't interested in hearing that. But God would speak to his people about their sin, the coming judgment as a result of that sin. God roared from them, ro- roared to them from Jerusalem. And this was not what they were interested to hear. They wanted to hear how great they were and how loved they were, perhaps. Or maybe they had, were just not regarding God at all. But... Uh, the earth still trembles before God and his word. And hopefully we do too, that we realize God's speaking to us. We need to hear this and respond to it. So Amos 2 verse 4 says, Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Judah and for four, I will not turn away its punishment because they have despised the law of the Lord and have not kept his commandments. Their lies lead them astray, lies which their fathers followed. But I will send a fire upon Judah and it shall devour the palaces of of Jerusalem. Amos began his prophecy speaking about God's judgment coming upon Syria, Philistia, Tyre, Edom, Ammon, and Moab. And sin upon sin upon sin had led to this fire coming that would devour them. And this was spoken in Bethel. That was in the southern part of the northern tribe of Israel. And I'm sure the Israelites who suffered at the hand of their neighbors and enemies were like, right on. Judgment should be going to Edom and to Moab and to uh, Tyre and all these places. Like, God should hold them to account. This is right. But then it gets real personal. And he starts talking about Judah. And he's going to talk about Israel that though they were His, and they had entered into a covenant with them, they were not blameless, and they, there would be consequences for their sin. And he would hold them to a higher standard than those other nations that surrounded them, because he hadn't spoken to them and revealed himself to that, them uh, to those other nations as he had to his own people. So privilege, it brings responsibility, responsibility and accountability before God. They had made a covenant together. They were informed about God and his ways and his laws. But they ignored him. They believed lies instead. It's like their parents had been blind guides and they'd both fallen into the same ditch. The danger of lies is it's not something that you believe or something that you say, but it's something that you live. If you believe lies, you will walk according to them. And that's away from God, away from his truth. And the people claimed to be obedient to God, but they didn't obey him. And the prophets, they had been sent to speak in God's name, but they didn't listen to them. It talks about in Jeremiah how the people were speculating on their dreams, right? Everyone had a dream. Everyone had a vision, and, uh, but God had not sent them. He says, you're speaking from the deceit of your own heart, I haven't sent these people. And Jesus, he pointed out hypocrisy. It's like straining a gnat and swallowing a camel. Now, straining a gnat, uh, like if you've swallowed a gnat, who here has accidentally eaten a bug or even on purpose to show off? Okay, we, we may have done that. I, I plead the fifth on that one. But um, trying to trying to swallow a camel, you can't do it. It will block. It blocks everything, and you won't even be able to breathe. Like... It's just impossible, right? God, they're focused on externals. God's looking at the heart. And he calls them out. Amos two verse six. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel, and for four, I will not turn away its punishment, because they sell the righteous for silver, and the poor for a pair of sandals. They pant after the dust of the earth which is on the head of the poor, and pervert the way of the humble. A man and his father go into the same girl to defile my holy name. They lie down by every altar on clothes taken in pledge, and drink the wine of the condemned in the house of their God. Amos is in Bethel. He's speaking now against Israel. And instead of just one or two things, he begins to rattle off a large list of the examples of their sins. God hones in on their greed, how they sold the poor for a pair of sandals, and how they, they weren't content to just take from the poor or to oppress them, but even the dust on their heads they coveted and they were greedy. We see an example of uh, this greed when that prophet died and the widow came to Elijah, Elisha um, really desperate because her two sons were going to be sold into slavery. Instead of um, forgiving the debt, the creditors, they were, they were going to sell their, her kids for money. The rich weren't content, and they also send in their sexual activity, that they broke God's commands. God gave a lot of commands specifically about sex and how it's within marriage. But father and son were sleeping with the same person. They defiled themselves by fornication and adultery. And this was also in a spiritual sense. Uh, It was on display for all. It says, by every altar. There was supposed to be one altar, that they were to go to in Jerusalem to offer up their sacrifices. But instead, they made altars under every green tree, on every high hill, so they're laying down and they would, they would usually lay down to eat, they'd recline. So they were eating and drinking and having sex with prostitutes, with these, um, the same woman, on top of clothes that they had taken as a pledge. Now that was in the law that they were not to keep a pledge overnight because your outer garment it was your covering in the day, but also your blanket at night in exodus twenty two twenty six it says, "If you ever take your neighbor 's garment as a pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down. for that is his only covering, it is his garment for his skin. What will he sleep in? And it will be that when he cries to me, I will hear, for I am gracious. Now, uh, when I was a kid, we would go to the neighborhood recreation center and we would give uh, like our ID or our wallet as collateral for, and they would do that in Israel as well. So this is that pledge, they say I'd like a loan please, I'd like to have some food and I'll work for you during the day but they were to receive that back once they had fulfilled their obligation and, um, but they weren't doing that. So it's one thing for a heathen nation to live in total disregard to God's laws because of their ignorance and their folly. But it was a great betrayal that God's people made an agreement with Him and then went against it. They willfully broke it. And we understand that in culture, when you have a privileged position, you are held to a higher standard. We all know it's it's not illegal in Oz to receive a a bottle of wine as a gift, but we had a premier in New South Wales not many years ago who received a bottle of wine and he was swiftly removed from his role because it's not for him to do. Right, it's unethical. A relationship of friends with benefits in our society is a different standard than those who are married, right? You'd expect some loyalty and So I'm not even talking about in the church. I'm talking about in culture. We realize, hey, you're married. You shouldn't be sleeping around. You shouldn't be hooking up with, with people on the side. You made a decision to marry this woman and you need to be faithful to her. Jesus pronounced woe on Capernaum because the things that they saw and heard, he said, if Sodom, if I had done the same miracles in Sodom, they would have repented, but you haven't repented. God held his people responsible to observe that covenant we see that Jesus brings a changed condition. Please turn to Acts 17, starting in verse 29. So in the days when we're reading about in Amos, there was was a different standard, and God does hold people to different standards, all according to his holy standard and his justice. But this is what Paul said when he met um, seekers in Acts 17, verse 29, in Athens. And he is concluding his message before them. He says, therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising. Truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. Jesus has come. He has been raised from the dead. God will judge the whole world, and Jesus is proof of that. He is the judge. So we're called to turn from our sin, turn to God in repentance. And this judgment now is upon all people. Um, And as those who know and obey God, we should take that to heart. We should walk in light of it. Back to Amos 2, verse 9. Yet it was I who destroyed the Amorite before them, whose height was like the height of the cedars, and he was as strong as the oaks. Yet I destroyed his fruit above and his his roots beneath. Also it was I who brought you up from the land of Egypt and led you 40 years through the wilderness to possess the land of the Amorite. God had spoken to his people. He delivered them. He saved them. Yet they worshiped gods that could not hear, uh, speak, or do anything. And he uses some hyperbole here. He says, the Amorites, some of those were those giants to whom you compared yourselves as grasshoppers. Like, they were huge compared to you. You were intimidated by them. But I destroyed their fruit above and their roots beneath. Like, God was responsible, not these false gods, the gods that these neighboring uh, nations worshiped. See, that's the thing. God had told his people that there would be judgment coming upon the Amorites. We read that in God's conversation with Abraham. And he says, your descendants are going to be oppressed in Egypt for 400 years because the sin of the Amorites is not yet full. So he was giving them 400 years to come to their senses, to repent before God, but they did not. And so when God brought his children out of Egypt with a strong hand, delivered them mightily, and uh, they carried the gods of Egypt with them, even though it was God who delivered them. And before his death, remember Joshua called him out for that. He says, put away the gods that you guys have carried all that time. Even Amos, this is what he says in 525, he says, Did you offer me sacrifices and offerings in the wilderness 40 years, O house of Israel? You also carried Sikuth, your king, and Chion, your idols, the star of your gods, which you made for yourselves. So he points out too, he says, when you were in the wilderness for those 40 years, did you only sacrifice to me? No, you carried those idols with you. You sacrificed to them as well. You had a king. I was to be your king. But you made your, the work of your own hands. That was your king. That was your master that you carried. You carried it with you. But I carried you. Like God is so much greater than these idols made by the hands of men. And then during the Exodus, remember Aaron. Moses leaves for a few days. They're like, hey, where's it? this Moses? We don't even know what's become of him. Make us God. So he's like, okay. And he makes a couple of golden calves and says, behold, the gods that delivered you from Egypt. And everyone's like, right on. And they're celebrating and partying. Jeroboam did something very similar when there was the split of the kingdoms. He's like, I don't want the children of Israel, I don't want the, the other 10 tribes that God's given to me to go back to Jerusalem. So he set up those calves in Bethel and Dan and said, it's too hard for you, O Israel, to go all the way to Jerusalem. Worship God here but it was a perversion of the truth. It was a mashup of religious practices that was all wrong. Tradition, convenience, selfishness, disobedience, rebellion. It was all ugly, but it was what was done. Amos two eleven and twelve. I raised up some of your sons as prophets and some of your young men as Nazarites. Is it not so, O you children of Israel? Says the Lord. But you gave the Nazarites wine to drink and commanded the prophets, saying, "Do not prophesy." They couldn't say they hadn't heard the truth. God had sent prophets to them. He had raised up Nazarites amongst them. He had given them His laws that detailed how they were to live. What God said in Zephaniah 3.2 was true of the northern kingdom. He says, she has not obeyed his voice. She has not received correction. She has not trusted in the Lord. She has not drawn near to her God. And so reading that, it's clear that God had spoken. God had instructed his people. God had proved himself worthy of trust. God had pursued them and made himself available to Him, to them, but they had not come to him. They didn't respond. They rebelled against the Lord. I guess that was their response, rebellion. Prophets were to speak the word of the Lord, to instruct, to warn, to correct. We see the law of the Nazarite. It's found in Numbers 6. And they were to separate themselves unto the Lord. So it wasn't just about what they weren't supposed to do. They were supposed to be separating themselves unto the Lord. And I think that's so important that we just don't withdraw from the sinfulness of this world, but we actually go to God and we align ourselves with him instead of just being what we're against. We need to be about what's right and to be honoring God. So, a Nazarite, they were to not cut their hair. They weren't to have vinegar or wine or any strong drink, not to eat grapes or raisins, any fruit of the vine. They weren't to uh, defile themselves with the dead. And at the end of this vow, it would be a set amount of time that they would make. They would have to shave all their body hair and then have this very elaborate series of sacrifices and pretty expensive ones. And this is what the Bible Knowledge Commentary says. It says, The sin offering was to atone for any sins unwittingly committed during the period of consecration. The burnt offering was to symbolize complete surrender to the Lord. And the fellowship offering was to speak of the fact that the Nazarite and the Lord were in perfect harmony. So you have, I'm going to offer sacrifices for sins I don't even know about, as I have kept from all these things during the period of the vow. I have completely surrendered to God, and I am in complete harmony with God. I mean, don't we want to say that? Don't we want that to be true? Yes. And the people knew the requirements. But when there was a Nazarite, they encouraged him to drink. They encouraged him to break the law. They believed in the existence of God. They believed that he spoke to them. They believed that they, he gave him his word and they believed in prophets like they there was no skepticism about god's existence or if this prof, if prophets exist like that wasn't part of the issue the issue was they despised god's prophets and they rebelled against his word another passage shows they weren't against prophecy like they were like oh we're totally past that we have the law that was not their take Uh, they demanded that prophecy align with their preferences. Like, don't prophesy what we don't want to hear, right? Isaiah 30, verse 8, it says, Now go, write it before them on a tablet, and note it on a scroll, that it may be for a time to come forever and ever that this is a rebellious people, lying children, children who will not hear the law of the Lord, who say to the seers, do not see. And to the prophets, do not prophesy to us right things. Speak to us smooth things, prophesy deceits. Get out of the way, turn aside from the path, cause the Holy One of Israel to cease from before us. So that was the issue. They're like, don't be speaking all this harsh, rough, judgmental things. Smooth things. Don't prophesy the right thing. (laughs) That's crazy, right? Like this is is someone speaking for God. They knew what the law said. Maybe they thought they knew better. Perhaps they saw themselves as progressive, but their revolution was rebellion. God would judge. But hear the heart of God. Don't think that he's delighting and there's a sense of satisfaction in saying like, that'll teach you like we can have. That's not God's heart at all. Amos 2.13, behold, I am weighed down by you as a cart full of sheaves is weighed down. Therefore, flight shall perish from the swift. The strong shall not strengthen his power, nor shall the mighty deliver himself. He shall not stand who handles the bow. And the swift of foot shall not escape, nor shall he who rides a horse deliver himself. The most courageous of men of might shall flee naked in that day. God said the people, their rebellion, it weighed him down like a cart creaking under a load of sheaves. It bears a resemblance to what God said in Isaiah 114. He says, "Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They are a trouble to me. I am weary of bearing them." We know that nothing is hard for God, right? It, it did not he did not have to strain when he created the universe, when he spoke the world into existence. And it wasn't too hard for him as if like, hey guys, I can do anything, but you're really taxing me with your rebellion. But it was, we know how it feels to be preoccupied, to be weighed down, to hear something that grieves us. We're like, oh man, because we love that person, we're sad to hear it. And God loved his people. He want—he once enjoyed beautiful Relationship with them, and he wanted it to continue and to deepen and grow. But instead, with each successive generation, it's like they grew further from God. And all this outward show, he's like, it just grieves me. It weighs me down. God blessed his people richly. It says he daily loaded them down with benefits in Psalm sixty-eight nineteen. Blessed be the Lord who daily loads up with benefits, the God of our salvation, Selah. Now, if God had only given us salvation during a lifetime of unspeakable torment, it would be better than we deserve. If that was the only thing he gave us, just like I'm gonna give you eternal life with me, but life is gonna be complete hell for your sin, (laughs) it's better than we deserve because we deserve hell for eternity. So God loaded his people daily with blessings and benefits and good things. But they loaded him down with their hypocrisy and their rebellion and lies. But still, God was gracious to them, right? He's still speaking to them. Like he didn't say, me and my people, we're not on speaking terms anymore. I don't even bother speaking to them because they don't listen. They've only rebelled against me. No, he kept pursuing them. He kept loving them. He kept kept blessing them even in this time when they were wandering from him. Gracious, merciful, forgiving, faithful. All these things we take for granted about God. But that's how he is. There was once a time where the love between God and his people, it could be compared to the euphoria of loving someone secretly, just, you know, with trembling, telling them that you love them, showing, you know, giving them a gift or something and waiting. It used to be you waited for a phone call or a letter Like, what does she say? What is she going to say? And you get that and say, I love you too. And you're like, oh, you're just like so over the moon. Just amazed. Like, your love has now been returned in a most beautiful and personal way. And there's this scene from Song of Solomon's 2, verse 8. It shows the delight of God in his people. It says, this is the Shulamite speaking, the woman in the story. The voice of my beloved, behold, he comes leaping upon the mountains, skipping upon the hills. My beloved is like a gazelle or a young stag. Behold, he stands behind her wall. He is looking through the windows, gazing through the lattice. My beloved spoke and said to me, rise up my love, my fair one, and come away. Now in this story, the girl, she was from the country. She was very very self-conscious about her plain looks. And she was so flattered that the king of kings would take an interest in her, that he would share, she would be the focus of all his affection and desire. And it's a picture of how God favored Israel. Not because Israel was the strongest or the most powerful people, it's because they were a small people, they were a weak people. But he loved them, he had compassion upon them, and it's like, God is leaping across the hills, just mountain to mountain to meet with his beloved. And he finds a queue of gentleman callers. And his calling out to her, it's an intrusion upon her privacy and upon her time. And she can't be bothered. He he is an offense to her that he would jump the queue and say, rise up, my love. Come away with me, just me. Because she has all these other options. She's entertaining I think being weighed down describes a feeling in a way that we can grasp that. And we say, man, that stinks. That's awful. Betrayal. Hypocrisy. That she would have a ring on her finger and be doing that. Because Israel rejected their maker and their creator, judgment was coming and they would experience what the Amorites had. They would be like Goliath who fell. They would know how it feels to fall and to be cut off. They would be exposed as vulnerable. The speediest of them would be caught. The mighty would be incapable of delivering himself. The God who strengthened the hands of David in battle, their enemies would be strengthened against them. They had adopted the gods of the Amorites and the Philistines and the Sidonians and they would have the same end except God would preserve them. Their destruction would not be for their eradication but for their restoration. He would bring them back. He's like, you're gonna flee naked without weapons, without armor, from your hiding places. You won't even have a white flag to wave for surrender. Like You will be totally helpless without me because I was the one that saved you before. Surrender to God would result in victory, but rebellion, death. Amos 3, verse 1. Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O children of Israel, against the whole family which I brought up from the land of Egypt, saying, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. The Bible tells us that God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. He would rather them turn from their sin and live. Just because Israel was of his family, he wasn't going to go easy on them. Like he wasn't going to show them favoritism like, yeah, I'm going to punish these surrounding nations, but I'll kind of give you a free pass because we're cool. That maybe is how they dealt among their communities with if you knew the judge and he was your cousin, things could be a little easier on you, but that's not how it is with God. The uh, people have said uh, that familiarity breeds contempt, totally untrue in God's case because he knew what he was getting into when he chose Israel, right? He says, I know that you're a stubborn and a stiff-necked people, but he chose them and he loved them and he entered into a covenant with them. So it wasn't like he was a bit shocked by their um, rebellious behavior or tendencies, God established his people. He made them strong and prosperous. They became proud and complacent. There was a fundamental shift from trusting in God to seeking wealth, power, to please men, to gain honor and ease. We read that in Amos 6.1. It says, Woe to you who are at ease in Zion and trust in Mount Samaria, notable persons in the chief nation to whom the house of Israel comes. So they trusted in their fortifications. They looked to the mighty men for protection and help instead of seeking God and trusting in him. Was God right to punish his people? Of course. Sin deserves worse. Oh, that I would realize this. I was thinking this. Man, sin is so awful that for a single sin, it... It's deserving to be punished in hell forever. That's how awful it is. I, I, I can be so complacent and a bit casual and calloused concerning sin. Like, oh, uh, it's not a big deal, but it is. Punish, in this case, it means to avenge or visit with hostile Intent. This is what Morgan said in the Enduring Word Commentary. He says, The false deduction, which is too often made, is that if we are the privileged people of God, therefore we may look for his mercy. He will not punish us. That is not so. The measure of our privilege in the divine economy is the measure of our responsibility. Therefore, if we fail to fulfill that responsibility, he will not pass over our sins, but rather will visit upon us all our iniquities. It is well that those nations who boasted the divine favor should lay this lesson to heart. See, God, having given people a law through, his con- through their conscience, without the law, could walk in light of it. But God had given his people his law, so they had that standard that they agreed to. If we love God, then we should not despise his correction, because then he's treating us as a beloved child, as a son in whom he loves. God has not dealt with us according to our sins. Jesus took the sins of the world upon him. There is forgiveness and redemption in Christ. When we repent, God relents. We see that in Nineveh, right? Where there was not even an opportunity or some doctrine laid out. Like, if you guys do this, this, and this, you can be free. It was yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. That's the message. That's it. There's no hope in that message. But the people repented and God relented, and for 150 years, they did not face the judgment that was coming. And Jonah, what was his response when God did not destroy them? He says, I know that you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abundant and loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. Gracious and merciful. That's God. Verse three, can two walk together unless they are agreed? Will a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? Will a young lion cry out of his den if he has caught nothing? Will a bird fall into a snare on the earth where there is no trap for it? Will a snare spring up from the earth if it has caught nothing at all? If a trumpet is blown in a city, will not the people be afraid? If there is calamity in a city, will not the Lord have done it? Surely the Lord does nothing unless he reveals his secret to his servants the prophets. Amos asks a series of rhetorical questions. These are questions the people would have understood and had 100% agreement with. This was not like a debate, like, hmm, yeah, if it happened, would it? And I say yes, he says no. They would have all agreed, well, yeah, those are obvious, right? It's, it's a cause, the connection between a cause and effect. If you want to go to a city with someone, if you're going to choose to walk together, you must be agreed, If one thinks the city is that way and the other believes the city is that way, you're going to be walking in opposite directions. So you must be in agreement to walk to the city together. Lions roar when they have prey. And and people would hear a roar and they'd go, hmm, dinner time, right? They've caught something because that's what they do. There was a predictable behavior. The way to catch birds isn't just to put out your hand and hope that they just land there so you can grab them or chasing them around, right? You'd have to set a trap. And the trap wouldn't just spring by itself. If you had set a bunch of traps and you come back in the morning and there was one that was sprung, you go, something was here last night. Something disturbed this. Either another poacher or, or a, a bird or some animal has tripped it. And everyone would be like, yeah, yeah, we agree. So they're all in agreement, okay? A trumpet sounding the alarm. It would get the attention of the townsfolk, they would run together armed and say like, where's the enemy, what's going on, what's happening, people would be concerned. There's a progression, you have two people walking, you have animals hunting animals, you have people hunting animals, and then you have uh, people being attacked and then you have God coming into the picture. It says, if there is a calamity in the city, will not the Lord have done it? Is there anything that happens without the knowledge of the almighty God? No, he knows about it. He remains good and a savior. We struggle with suffering. We struggle with calamities and we wonder where is God in the calamity? If he's good, how could he allow this? How could this thing happen? Well, please turn to Luke 13, starting in verse one, to read the words of Jesus. Um, knowing the mindset of the people to whom he spoke, and that we can have a very similar mindset. Luke chapter 13, verse 1. There were present at that season some who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And Jesus answered and said to them, do you suppose that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered such things? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse sinners than all other men who dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. The Jews imagined that these situations were examples of divine vengeance upon people who had sinned in some horrible way, a way unknown to the other people, but known to God. And so vengeance was taken upon them. And we might imagine, if we see someone suffering or in pain, that they must be paying for their sins or uh, being justly punished for their wickedness. But can any adequate punishment for sin be done on earth? No. No, it takes eternity to pay for sins. It takes the blood of Jesus Christ to wash us of all sin. So, suffering and pain and hurt is not divine vengeance upon someone who's worse than everyone else. Because what does that lead us to do? That leads us to be judgmental and to not show compassion to them, to think that they deserve that for something. Now, we all deserve death for sin, right? Jesus pointed out, it did no good to stand in judgment of others when you haven't repented yourself. He says, guys, but unless you repent, you will likewise perish, just like them. You'll end up the same way. Death is default for all people. Now, these people, they could have died in their beds in an old age. God saw fit to take them early or quickly in his mercy. And we wonder how that could be. How could that be merciful? Well, that self-righteous, judgmental, and complacent people would stop taking life for granted, repent of their sins, and be saved. That's one reason. But God, he is the wise judge. He is a good father. He is um, all-knowing and all-wise. And I cannot say why God allows a calamity to befall one in childhood while another is preserved for a century. I don't presume to know this. But I know that God is merciful, he is good, and he is full of compassion. That I can know. He's a savior. And I was struck by something that Matthew Henry wrote, and I've just kind of been turning it around in my mind. He says, nothing but their own repentance can disentangle them. All their troubles came from the hand of God's providence. That trouble can come from a providential hand of God, a hand that's caring it's hard for us to accept at times because of how we feel and because we see the fallout. But do we consider God and that no calamity happens except if he allows it, knows about it? Amos 3.7, it says, God kept no secrets about the coming judgment. It would not be a surprise. It would only be a surprise to people who didn't believe God. He, he, he detailed it in the law. It wasn't the first time that he had talked about judgment coming talked about the law, he gave his prophets, he reminded them again and again and again that this was the consequence for sin. Out of his grace, out of his mercy. Amos eight. a lion has roared, who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken, who can but prophesy? If it's reasonable that people would be concerned or afraid at the sound of a roar of a lion, there should be a response to the words of God spoken through the prophet. He says, who can but prophesy? When God's spoken, how can we not speak about it? And I think about when we hear a breaking news that impacts us, we usually will get on our phones and we'll contact someone. I I hear about the metro being down. I'll say, Laura, do you get that message that the metro's down? Oh, okay, thanks. So I can better manage my day. If I know about a car smash, well, then I'm going to let someone know that I'm eating. Hey, this road's closed. Don't go that way. Go this way. God was merciful and faithful to speak truth. Therefore, Amos spoke the words that God put in his mouth. And he says, in this one verse, if there is calamity, will not the Lord have done it? And it made me think, can I say with Job, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away? And we put that full stop and we want to just stop there. But he goes on, he says, blessed be the name of the Lord. The Lord gave and the Lord is taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. God does allow what we call calamities, but in him there's always redemption and salvation. He remains good in a world full of awful, terrible things, calamities and illness and pains. God allows suffering, but provides consolation and healing for our souls, for our bodies. And only God is able to bring eternal benefit from our temporary pains. Wouldn't it be ridiculous for a sick man to blame the doctor who diagnosed his condition and supplied a guaranteed cure? Like, doctor, this is your fault. Or what? how silly would it be if I go in for scans and it reveals that I have a tumor or something serious, and I show up at the MRI technician's house and I say, how dare you take such unflattering pictures of me? Right? Pretty ridiculous. But that's what we do when we isolate ourselves and we become angry because of what God has allowed. He's pointing out the truth. He's telling us what we need to hear, and it's for our good and for the benefit of all. Why why would we cut ourselves off from our only source of consolation and hope? But we do that. I can do that. No doctor, no MRI technician is going to offer you a guarantee of anything. But God's goodness is without fail. That is a guarantee. He is ever merciful and gracious and relents from doing harm. He redeems the things that were meant for evil, like in the life of Joseph like Jesus being crucified, that he's given salvation now to everyone through that. So I just ask you, do you feel weighed down today? Do you realize that there's hidden wounds in your mind and your heart that are beyond cure? Are you willing to believe that all the troubles, all the calamities have come from God's providence? Because you trust in God. Providence, it's not a word we often use. It's described as timely care, active foresight, accompanied with the procurement of what is necessary for future use. Timely care. When we see something that instantly benefits us, we go, oh, what timing? That's from the Lord. Well, when the calamity happens, trust that he's just that good and he's just that actively caring for you, procuring what's necessary for future use. I don't know what it is, but he does because he's God and he's good. If you're born again, you are no longer under the curse of sin and your troubles, even if it's judgment for sin, it's a product of God's care to draw you to him. Don't cut yourself off from God because you're angry or because you don't understand with what he's allowed. So whether you're like a child in pain or someone who's received an unsolicited grave diagnosis, run to God. Seek him. Surrender before his mercy and his grace. Draw near to him in repentance. Rest in his arms and offer a sacrifice of praise. Trust him bless his holy name. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that you are good. And Lord, I thank you even for the calamities you allow, that you know about, and that you redeem every day for your glory. I pray, Lord, you to put in us such a faith to believe you as a child to know that you are good and we can trust you and we can draw near to you in our suffering and in our sorrows, even when it's a consequence for what we've done or not. Lord, help us to be those who run to you. And then we don't run back and just start doing our own thing again. Help us to abide. Help us to rest. Help us to linger with you. And when you say, rise up, my fair one, come away, that we would come away with you and we would rest with you. And we would just... Chuck aside those idols that we can carry and the self-pity and the self-focus and rely upon you, being for others whom you have been to us, someone who's loving and compassionate and kind, who prays, who loves without end. Lord, we are so blessed beyond measure. You have daily loaded us with benefits. You have given us your love, your forgiveness. You tell us the truth even when it hurts, Even when it's weighing you down, Lord, help us to be casting those cares upon you because you care for us. Thank you, Lord, that we can come to you and that you have made a way through Jesus Christ to be born again, to have new life, and to rest in your love forever. In Jesus' name, amen.